This series really is the vision of our church. If you really want to understand our church and what our vision is, oftentimes you'll hear us say the vision of our church is the four cups or the four cups of Passover. And what I want to do is take the next few weeks and preach through what does that mean? What what does the four cups actually mean or the four cups of Passover? What is that all about? And if you look at the logo of our church, you'll see the four cups in the logo. Those aren't, you know, people think they're dots, but they're not dots. They're actually cups, and they're the four cups of Passover, and it's the vision and the goal of our church. If you've ever been to a Jewish Seder or a Jewish Passover ceremony, it's what the Seder is. It's the celebration of Passover. To this day, started 3,500 years ago, and to this day, the Jewish people will drink four cups of wine. And with each cup of wine, they they represent one of the four major promises God made the nation of Israel. And they're they're found in the I wills. They call them the I wills. And they read these promises, I will, I will, I will. And they drink these four cups of wine. And these promises that God made a group of people 3,500 years ago are still true for us today, and it comes down to God's will for your life. This is God's will for your life. This is God's plan. People want to know, what's God's will for my life? It's that these four promises be fulfilled in your life that you drink or or taste symbolically these four cups and you see them come to be in your life. And so we built our entire church around this. We just figure if God has four promises for you and God's plan and God's will for your life is to see these four things accomplished, we just thought, why not design our entire church around seeing these four things happen in your life? And so as you notice, we only do four things as a church, and each of the things we do as a church are directly connected to helping you drink out of one of these four cups, or, or a better way to put it is to see one of these four promises realized in your life. And so the real heartbeat of our church is for people who have ever woke up and, and said to themselves, there's got to be more than this. There just has to be more to life than this. Like, like, you know, I wake up Monday morning and I work hard all week. And, and what's the point? Like, why am I working so hard? Is it just to hopefully retire one day and get my kids through school? Or is there a greater purpose to my life? There's got to be more. Well, you need to know 3,500 years ago, God made Four promises to a group of people that are still true for your life today. And there's a lot of promises in God's word, but they all center around these big four. And what we're going to do is over the next four weeks, starting with Easter, we're going to deal with the very first promise. And then each week we're going to deal with one of the promises. But today what I want to do is kind of review them with you and then build a little foundation for you to understand the context of this whole thing. So let's, let, let, let's first overview these I wills that the Jews to this day recite out loud and drink a cup of wine. It's found in Exodus chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, going through verse 7. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And here's, here's the first I will that they'll, they'll, to this day, Jesus did this 2,000 years ago and he celebrated Passover with his family. It was started 3,500 years ago. And to this day, they, they recite these I wills out loud. Here's the first one. I will bring you out. That's, that's God's first goal for your life. 
The first thing God wants to do, God's not saying like, I want to fix you and I want to clean you up and I want to put your life back together and get everything in order. No, no, no. God, all God wants to do right now is get you out. That's his first plan for your life. He's not trying to fix you or clean you up. He just wants to get you out. Like, like we live in this slavery to self and slavery to life and slavery to sin. And God is just saying, listen, I just want to get you out. I want to get you out from all of that. So he says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And in the Old Testament, Egyptians always represents the, the sin. I, I want to bring you out from that just life of sin, that life of not being able to do what you want because you're just enslaved to self, enslaved to sin. Then he says, here's the second I will, and then they drink a cup of wine. I will free you. I will free you. I'll, I'll bring you into this place of freedom. I'm going to free you from being a slave. So God wants to get you out get you out of that place. Then God says, now I want to get that stuff out of you. Because we all, you know, when we come to God, we come to God with issues. We all have issues. We've got struggles. We've got negative thought lives and addictions and, and just all sorts of issues. And God says, okay, first I want to just get you out. Then after I get you out, I want to free you from all of those issues, things that are just kind of holding you back from your past. Then he says, here's the third I will. I will redeem you. I'll redeem you. And unfortunately, most Christians never get to this third place. Most Christians stop at cup number two and spend the rest of their life. Like they get out of Egypt, you know, God, God gets them out, they get saved, they're going to heaven, and then they spend the rest of their life working on their issues. Like they spend the rest of their life sitting in small groups, learning the Bible, trying to work through the issues of their life, and they never get to this last, uh, this third place of, of really discovering why did God create you? Why did God put you on earth? Let God restore you and redeem you back to his original plan for your life. And I love the illustration. One of our overseers, Ken Hubbard, is here, and he did this illustration a few years ago at his church where he actually had these classic cars on stage that they rescued from junkyards, and, 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 and they got them out of the junkyard. But just because you get a car out of the junkyard doesn't mean the car's been restored, doesn't mean the car's usable, doesn't mean the car's drivable. So God wants to get you out. Then he wants to restore you to your original state so that you can be used. And that's this cup of redemption, this this. this Third, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment. And then here's the fourth one. I will take you, now look at this, that's individual you, as my own people. Now that's cool because the first three are all about you. Like I'll do this for you and I'll do this for you and I'll do this for you. And then number four, God says, now I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a people. It's no longer about you anymore. It's now about you being part of a family. It's about you being part of a body. It's about you being part of a team. You're not an individual anymore. You're now part of my family, part of my body. You have a place. You have a purpose. You have a, a function. There's something I want you to do. And, and what you'll discover is you'll never accomplish God's plan for your life on your own. You were created by God to work in teams. You were created by God to be a part of a family, to be a part of a team, to be a people. That was God's plan for your life. He says, you, you will be my people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Or another way to say that is then you'll finally know what life's all about. 
then you'll finally reach a place of really understanding what is this all about? Like, why am I here? You'll understand that there is more than what you're currently experiencing right now. You'll know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So let's quickly review these four things, the four promises God God wants for you. The first one is salvation. God just wants to get you saved. He wants to get you going to heaven. Salvation. Then he wants freedom. Freedom because we got issues. We got we got things that hold us back. You know, things from our past, whether it's abuse or whether it's addiction or whether it's sins or whether it's just just pride or self, things that are just holding us back. And God wants to get us free from all of that junk. Then God wants to restore you. He wants to to restore your life. He wants to to turn you back to what he originally created you to be because he created you with purpose. He created you with destiny. So he wants to restore you. Then he wants to bring you to a place of fulfillment. That's God's fourth promise is for you to live a life of fulfillment. And you're never going to discover true fulfillment in life until you know what it is to accomplish what you were created for. Like when you begin to discover this is what I was made for. This is why God put me on planet Earth. And you begin to live that out. It's the most fulfilling place you'll ever be. You can do anything else with your life, but until you do what God created you to do, you will never truly be fulfilled. And so God decided to take this truth or this, this kind of this picture of these, the, the, these four cups, and he puts it in this picture or this metaphor that to this day, Jewish people still celebrate. Like if you go to a Jewish Seder to this day, they'll drink the four cups of Passover and they'll, they'll recite these I wills out loud. Well, what I want to do is I want to help connect the dots for you how these four promises connect to Passover. Like, why do we say four cups of Passover? How do these four promises connect to Passover? And to do that, I need to explain to you what is Passover. For those of you that, 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 that don't understand, like, what is Passover? Let me, let me review this with you. It goes back about uh, roughly, uh, let's see, about 4,000 4, years ago. Uh, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, you know, the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. They're the patriarchs of our faith, of our, uh, of our lineage. Jacob had 12 sons. The 12 sons that Jacob had became the 12 tribes of Israel. If you go to Israel today, there's, they talk about these 12 tribes. Well, each son's family became a tribe or a nation of people within Israel. So there's the 12 tribes. Jacob's youngest son was Joseph. Many of you remember uh, Joseph and the coat of many colors. They did Broadway musicals on his life. Well, Joseph was the youngest son. He was daddy's favorite. Well, he ran his mouth a little too much, making his brothers jealous because he was daddy's favorite. They got mad. They kidnapped their brother, sold him into slavery, and told dad he was killed or he died. Joseph gets sold to Egypt. He goes to Egypt through a series of just pretty tragic events in his life. Uh, He ends up second in command over all of Egypt. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. Uh, They're going to have seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. Joseph figures it all out, says, okay, what we need to do is we need to save during the seven years of prosperity so that we can survive during the seven years of famine. So he begins to store up food. 
Well, his brothers and his father and family, they're in Canaan. It's now seven years of famine. They're starving to death. They need food. And so they hear there's food in Egypt. So they go to Egypt to buy food. Joseph recognizes them through a series of reconciliation. Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt. His father and him are reunited. His brothers, they all move to Egypt. Pharaoh loves Joseph. So Pharaoh gives Joseph's family the best part of Egypt. And so they all move to Egypt to get the best part of the land. Now, fast forward 400 years. There's a new Pharaoh. This Pharaoh doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't know Joseph's significance to their nation. All he sees is this group of Jewish people that are growing and growing and growing. He doesn't like them. Uh, he, 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 he gets very just you know, scared of them, intimidated of them. So he takes all of the Jewish people and puts them in slavery. He enslaves all of the Jewish people, and they're the ones that built some of the wonders of the world, like the pyramids. That was the Jewish people that built those. So they're now slaves in Egypt, and and God continues to bless them, and they prosper and grow, and Pharaoh doesn't like it, and so he wants to punish them and wants to make it harder for them. So he decides to kill all the firstborn male children, and so they're starting to kill all the baby boys, and Moses, remember Moses, Let My People Go, the movie just came out. Uh, Moses' mom didn't want to kill him, so she put him in a basket, put him in the river, sent him down the river, and Pharaoh's daughter, the princess, discovers him. She adopts him, brings him home, raises Moses. Moses has her own child. Years later, Moses grows up. He realizes he's Hebrew, Jewish. Uh, he sees one of the Egyptians abusing one of the Hebrew people. He gets mad, kills the Egyptian, and now he runs for his life and spends the next 40 years living in the wilderness. So 40 years in the wilderness, he's out in the wilderness. He's now a, a shepherd and farmer, and he's taking care of sheep, and he's going out in the middle of the wilderness, and all of a sudden, he sees a bush that's on fire, and it's not burning up. I'm telling you, the Bible's good if you read it. I mean, there's some, there's some crazy stuff in the Bible. So there's this bush that, that is just full-blown on fire, but the bush isn't burning up. Then the bush starts talking to him and really freaks him out. And it's actually God speaking through this bush. And he says, Moses, go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So Moses goes to Egypt, says to Pharaoh, let my people go. He says, no. Moses says, okay, there's going to be 10 plagues that are going to happen if you don't let God's people go. And, and he says, no. And so they start going through the plagues, which is harden Pharaoh's heart and harden Pharaoh's heart. Finally, they get to the 10th plague, the 10th plague. God says, I'm going to send a death angel into Egypt. And this death angel is going to kill every firstborn child in Egypt, every firstborn animal in Egypt, this death angel is going to come. But he made a provision for the Hebrews, the, the Jewish people. He said, if you will take a lamb, sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of the lamb, spread it over the doorpost of your house, the death angel will pass over your house. That's where we get the word Passover. The death angel will pass over your house because he'll see the blood of the lamb. If the blood of the lamb is there, the death angel passes over the house. So finally, Pharaoh, after this one, says, you guys leave, get out of here, no more. They leave, he changes his mind, chases him in the middle of the Red Sea, parts, kills Pharaoh, all of his people. Now Moses and all of the Israelites, a couple million of them, are in the middle of the wilderness. And God says, I need to teach you guys how to party. You guys have been slaves for 400 years. You don't know how to have any fun at all. I need to start some parties and some celebrations and some feasts where there's going to be lots and lots of food and lots and lots of fun. That's why I like God because he's all about food and fun. And so God says, it's time to have some celebrations here. And so one of the parties that God institutes in the Old Testament is Passover. 
Passover, where we get the phrase four cups of Passover, and it's kind of like our July 4th. It's Independence Day. It's, it's the national holiday when the death angel passed over the Hebrew children, and they were finally free to leave Egypt. Exodus 12, verse 26. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony, meaning Passover, mean to you? Tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So that's where Passover comes from. Now, fast forward again, 1400 years. It's now the time of Jesus. It's Thursday night. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. It's Thursday night. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and he's celebrating Passover the very same way they celebrated for now thir- for 1400 years. Jesus is there celebrating Passover with his disciples and he institutes what we now know is the fulfillment of Passover which is the communion ceremony that we celebrate as communion as Christians it's what we're going to do this Thursday in our holy Thursday service the reason it's holy Thursday is because Jesus did this Thursday night with the disciples so here it is Luke chapter 22 verse 15 and he said to them I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment. I'm going to do this again until it finds fulfillment. Now, this is a key phrase in the Bible. Because for 1,400 years, there has been no fulfillment to these four promises. For 1,400 years, the Jewish people have been celebrating these four promises as a ritual, but they've left frustrated because they're not seeing any of these promises actually happen in their life. They're not getting free of sin. They don't have power to to live with purpose. They don't really finding their redemption or their fulfillment. It's just slavery and bondage and thing after thing. And it's just up and down. So for 1,400 years, there's been no fulfillment of these promises because it wasn't until Jesus died that there was power to these promises. See, it was Jesus's death that made these promises reality for us. See, until he died, these weren't fulfilled. They didn't have the power for fulfillment. So he says, until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's the communion ceremony that we now celebrate. It originated in Passover. And all of this is to say, you can't have any one of those promises without Jesus. You can't have any of it without Jesus is at the center. See, our vision as a church only works if Jesus is in it. These things are only going to happen in your life if Jesus is in it. You will never find true fulfillment without Jesus. No amount of meditation, no amount of success, no amount of money, no amount of tranquility will bring you fulfillment without Jesus. You can't try it. Try everything this world has to offer you and you'll discover you won't be fulfilled. You'll come back because you still will be empty. So now let me, let me help you understand now, with all of that, 
how does Jesus connect to this ceremony 1,400 years before his time? Like, like, like how, how, how is Jesus in the center of this whole thing? Like, we know he celebrated it because he was Jewish, but why is Jesus the centerpiece? Why is he the key? Why is he the reason that this whole thing works? Well, Paul gives us the answer. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. See, the reason Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover is because he became the lamb. Remember, 1,400 years earlier, they had to sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the door for the death angel to pass over. Well, Jesus became the sacrificial lamb. He shed his blood so that these promises, these four core promises that God's heart is for every human on planet earth have now the power to be fulfilled. He is at the heart of the Passover because he's the lamb. He is the lamb. This is, this was his major title throughout the new Testament. They called him lamb of God. You are the lamb in heaven showing us what it's going to be like in the future. The title that you and I are going to use most in heaven, according to Revelations, is Lamb. We will, we will sing, we will shout, we will praise. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. He was the Lamb. He is the power for these promises to be fulfilled in your life. So let's move to the next section. Christ, our Passover Lamb. He's the Passover Lamb. Look at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was prophetic. John was speaking prophetically over Jesus. So what I want to do for the next couple of moments is let's look at the Passover ceremony. Let's, let's look at the original Passover that happened 3,500 years ago, and I want to show you a couple things about the lamb in the original Passover that are true about Jesus today. Things that are like, because when Jesus became the lamb, he fulfilled it perfectly. He fulfilled every detail. Like, I don't have time to go through every single area of Jesus fulfilling the lamb from being hung on the cross at 9 a.m. when the Jewish people put the lamb in the oven to being taken off the cross at 3 p.m. when Jewish people took the lamb out of the oven. Every detail was fulfilled perfectly. But I just want to give three of them to you today. First one is the lamb was perfect. The lamb was perfect. Exodus 12, verse 5, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. The lamb you sacrifice had to be perfect. It had to be without defect. You could not offer a flawed animal as a sacrifice. It wouldn't have worked. The death angel would not have passed over your home. The only way for the death angel to pass over the home was if you sacrificed a perfect lamb. People have to realize Jesus was perfect. And this is also why Jesus got so upset at the money changers. Do you remember the story in the Bible where Jesus goes into the temple and he's mad and he starts turning over tables and he gets the whip out and he starts throwing people out of the temple? What was going on was it was Passover. And during Passover, you had to sacrifice a, a clean or a perfect 
animal. And the only way for your animal to be qualified is the priest would have to bless it and the priest would have to declare it to be clean. And so you would bring your animal to the temple and you would present it to the priest and it would be a totally perfect animal and you'd present to the priest and the priest would say, no, that one's not clean. That's unclean. And, and you were left in the situation of you had to have a clean animal and the priest wasn't going to bless it. You're in trouble. And so they would say, well, what do we do? And the priest would say, well, if you need a clean animal, I got some right here that I can sell you. So the priest was actually extorting people for money. He was declaring their animals unclean so that he could make money by selling them animals that he declared to be clean. And it was total extortion. And this made Jesus furious. It enraged him. And so he cleaned out the entire temple. But the key point to understand is Jesus was perfect. If he was anything but perfect, if there was any sin at all in Jesus' life, he would not have qualified to be the lamb. Remember, we learned a couple weeks ago in the blessed life that that the clean animal could be sacrificed to redeem the unclean. See, Jesus was the only one born human being that was clean. He was the only human ever to be born perfect, to be born clean, to never sin. That's what qualified him to be the sacrificial lamb. It's what qualified him to die for you and I that were born sinners. See, we weren't born perfect. We were born with sin nature. Ask any parent. No parent ever had to teach their child how to be bad. They understood that naturally because we are born with a sin nature. Jesus was the only one born perfect. So he was the only one that qualified to be our sacrifice. First Peter one, verse 18, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Christ was perfect. Jesus was the only one that qualified to help you. He's the only one that was qualified to save you. He was the only one that qualifies to rescue and to redeem you. That's why you can't have any of it without him because he was the only perfect, acceptable sacrifice that could redeem us. Here's the second thing I want to show you about the lamb. The lamb was sacrificed. The lamb was sacrificed. Now, when I say sacrifice and we say things like Jesus died for you and Jesus was killed, that's the nice way to put it. Those are the nice and pleasant terms for what actually happened. Because Jesus didn't just die for you. Let me show you another term. Exodus chapter 12, verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day. It's talking about the lambs that would be sacrificed for Passover. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. See, the lambs weren't just killed, they were slaughtered. The lamb had to be slaughtered. I need to take a few minutes and just get a little heavy for a second because I think sometimes we need to wake up and be reminded of what Jesus actually did on our behalf. Because it's so easy to say things like, Jesus died for you. No, he didn't die for you. He was slaughtered for you. He was slaughtered on your behalf. God specifically chose a point in history where capital punishment was the absolute worst so that he could demonstrate his complete and total love for you. 
Think about it. God could have chose any moment in history. God could have chose our generation for Jesus. He could have sent Jesus during our time and he would have died of lethal injection. But God chose a point in history where it was the most brutal and it was the most horrific. That's why I get offended when people tell me Christianity is for wimps and and it's for weak people. Nobody ever took more pain than Jesus as a human being. No one ever went through anything like what he went through. And never once did he ask it to stop. Never once did he beg for mercy. Never once did he cry for help. And don't, 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 don't misunderstand this. Jesus didn't have this supernatural God power where, where he didn't feel the pain. He was completely human when he went through this. Isaiah describes it like this. Chapter 53, but he was pierced. His flesh was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's evil. It wasn't his evil. It was our evil. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. He was completely punished so that you and I could have peace and experience peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. With this being Palm Sunday, I need to help you understand Good Friday as we move into this week. Because Good Friday wasn't good. It was a bad day for Jesus. Maybe good for us, but it was a terrible day for him. See, the Romans studied the science of torture where the Romans knew how to torture a person to the very edge of their life so that they could inflict as much pain as possible without killing them. And they had this thing down to a science. The first thing they did to Jesus was they scourged him. Scourging is where they would tie his hands to a stake in the ground, stretching his back out. They would take what they call a cat of nine tails. It was a whip with nine leather straps. And within each leather strap, they would weave thorns and glass and metal and bone. They would dip the whip in water, making it heavy so that it would, it would come down and it would, it would dig into the flesh. And they would bring that whip down on his back. And as they would bring it down, they would twist so that the straps would dig in deep into the flesh. And instead of bringing it up, they would drag it down so that they could rip as much skin and flesh off of the body as they possibly could. Completely exposing muscle, flesh, everything you can imagine. They would do 39 lashes. The reason it was specifically 39 is because very human beings can endure 40 and live. So they stopped it at 39. The way they would do it is they would take 13 lashes over his right shoulder for the whole purpose of separating the trapezius muscle, which you'll find out about in a minute. Then they would do 13 lashes over the left shoulder, again, to separate the shoulder muscle. They would take 13 lashes and they would go down the center of his spine so that they could rip out as much flesh on the center of his spine, exposing nerves and, and just, just as much as they could down the center of his spine, which you'll find out about in a moment. After that, they would take rods and they would beat his calves and they would beat his Achilles tendon until his, his, his calves and his tendons were so black and blue and sore that to put any weight or pressure on them at all was agonizing so that when he had to carry the cross, it's why you see him continue to collapse carrying the cross because of the weight on the bruised and beaten legs 
After they were done with that, they took him to the praetorium. The praetorium was the Roman locker room. Now the Roman guards, they hated the Jewish people. None of them wanted to be stationed in Israel. They hated it. They wanted to be home with their family and they despised these people. So they brutalized him in this locker room. We don't even know the half of what they did to him. What we do know is they blindfolded Jesus and they would punch him in the face as hard as they could. Guard after guard would punch him. And then they would mock him and say, prophesy, who hits you? Who hits you? And they would just punch him and they'd pull his beard out. Then they took a crown of thorns, thorns that were long and hard like nails, and they would dig it into his head, into his skull and his scalp. And you would think that would cause a lot of blood, but actually what it would do is force the blood to go in, into the brain, creating the worst migraine you can possibly imagine. Then they brought him up to the hill and they laid him on the wooden cross and they nailed the spike into his wrist in a point where it would, it, would, it would sever the most nerves and cause searing pain throughout his arms. Then they would tie his arm to the cross because if they hung him like that, his hand would rip right off the spike. Then they would take his feet and nail it to the bottom. And, and it's not like anything like you see in the movies. They, they put the legs at a 45 degree angle so that the entire weight of his body would be on his thigh muscles creating incredible muscle spasms and cramps. And remember, they ripped the shoulder muscles so he couldn't pull up. And the way you would die on the cross is you would suffocate because you can't breathe hanging in that position. The only way to catch a breath is to pull your body up to catch a breath. And so they, they, they put him in this position where he would have to force the entire weight of his body on his thigh muscles as they're spazzing and cramping. And the only way to do that is to push his back the spine that had been exposed against the splinters of the cross to catch a breath. He did that for six hours. He hung on that cross. And he wasn't still. He was constantly writhing in agony, moving, suffocating, pushing, suffocating, pushing, leg spasms. They took a college athlete and they put him on a cross like this, tied his hands, didn't nail it. And they just wanted to, they put all the heart monitors, EKG stuff on him. They put him in the position with his legs at the 45-degree angle. Within 90 seconds, his heart rate was over 140. Within six minutes, he was begging and crying them to take him down because he couldn't handle the pain in his thighs. Jesus did that for six hours. The Romans finally couldn't take it, and they would break the legs so that the person would suffocate and die. When they came to Jesus, he had already died. They took a spear, they put it under his rib cage and pierced his heart, and it says blood and water flowed out of his heart. Well, doctors tell us that the only reason blood and water would have flowed out of his heart is because his heart had ruptured. See, he didn't die of asphyxiation. He didn't suffocate. He literally died of a broken heart. And many theologians believe it was the weight of sin that crushed his heart. A man that was perfect, a man that never knew sin, a man that had never been separated from his father, had all of your sin and all of my sin, and it literally crushed his heart to the point where he died of a broken heart. See, Jesus didn't die for you. He was slaughtered for you. The lamb was slaughtered. And that's why I gladly give him my all. That's why I don't hold anything back. That's why my faith isn't private. When I look at what Jesus did for me, the only reasonable response is to give him my all. He was slaughtered. And then here's the third thing about the lamb. The lamb was shared. 
the lamb was shared. And this is, this is important for us as a church to understand this one. Exodus 12, verse 4, if any household is too small, if any household is too small, see, a lamb would have been too big for one family. And so, so if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with one another with their nearest neighbor. Why? Because none of the lamb could be wasted. All of the lamb had to be consumed. You could not waste any of the lamb. It all had to be eaten. See, Jesus must be consumed by all. We have a responsibility as his followers to share the lamb. See, they literally had to invite their neighbors to eat the lamb because they could not allow any of it to go to waste. They had to share the lamb. So let me just dispel a little myth with you about our church. You know, we've been growing and people are saying, well, the church is getting too big. No, we're not too big because there's still lamb left to share. If anything, we're too small. Our church isn't too big. We're too small because there's lamb left to share. There are still people in North County that have never tasted the lamb. So we are not too big because we have lamb that is left that needs to be consumed. That's why we work so hard to create space and add more chairs and add more services and add more campuses because there is more lamb left to be shared. So what is our opportunity? Let's, let's just close with this. Our opportunity next week is the greatest weekend of the year for believers to share the lamb. It's the greatest opportunity you will ever have. That's why we're adding extra seats at the table next week. We have extra services and extra chairs, and we're putting more, more place settings at the table because it's time for us to invite the neighbors over so that we can share the lamb. And we're working hard as a team to prepare a meal for people. We're working hard to prepare a meal so that we can share the lamb. And God is saying to you today, I need you to get involved. I need you to be a part of this whole thing. And so we, we have put out these connection or these invite cards in everyone's worship guide. You got these, these cards that, that pull out so that you can be a part of what God is doing next week. So let me give you three things that we want everyone in our church to do. Three things that we're asking every single person to do. Number one, pray. We need you to pray. We need you to pray like you've never prayed before. And, and let me teach you how to pray. In Corinthians chapter 4, FYI, I think we put the wrong number in there. So if you look for that in your Bible, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So the God of age, that's, that's the devil, that's Satan. He has blinded people. He has blinded people so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan has blinded people from seeing the truth. He has blinded people from, from seeing Jesus. Let me give you an illustration. Um, Satan has put something in between them and Jesus where they can't see clearly. Like I'm holding a number up right now. And you can't see the number that I'm holding. You don't know what number I'm holding because there's something blinding you from the number. There's something between you and seeing the number I'm holding up. It's, it's blinding you. So what we are to do as believers is pray, use the spiritual authority God has given us to take down the blinders. See, we all have people we're praying for. It could be a husband or wife or children or a neighbor or somebody, that, a co-worker that we want them to experience Jesus. And oftentimes what people pray, and, and, and again, don't, don't take this as condemnation if you've never been taught this before. 
because your heart means the right thing. But oftentimes what people pray is God changed their heart. God, I want you to change my husband's heart. I want you to change my wife's. I want you to change my son's heart. Change their heart. You need to understand the Bible calls that type of prayer witchcraft. Because that's manipulating somebody's free will. You cannot ask God to manipulate somebody's free will. You can't pray that. What you have to pray is that the blinders Satan has created in their life will be removed. See, you have the spiritual authority to tear down the blinders. You have the ability that in Jesus' name right now, those those blinders that you have placed over my son, Satan, I command them to be gone in the name of Jesus. Let him see the truth. Let him see clearly. Let him see who you are. Remove those blinders in the name of Jesus. That's what I need you to start praying for your friends. Because I tell you, if you'll start removing the blinders in people's life, removing the lies that Satan has built in their life, you start tearing down those walls and they begin to start seeing God clearly and start seeing the truth, their heart will change because of them seeing the truth. So you've got to start praying against the blinders in their life. Here's number two, invite. Invite. Studies tell us. That's what these cards are all about. Studies tell us that if you invite somebody to church on a normal weekend, you've got about a 20% chance of them saying yes. On Easter weekend, you have an 84% chance of them saying yes. That's good odds. 84%. So let me teach you how to invite somebody to church. We created these cards for you to use. Let me show you the right way to use these cards. The wrong way to use the card is to put them on their desk, put them on their car, put them on their doorstep. Uh, Here you go. Hope you can come to church. That's the wrong way to use the card. The right way to use the card is you give them the card and say, I'm going to the 11 o'clock service. I'll see you 10 minutes before in the cafe. We'll get a cup of coffee and sit together. That's the right way to use the card. If they tell you we can't come to the 11 o'clock service, the proper response for a follower of Christ is to say to them, What service can you come to? I'll change my plans to join you. That's the proper response. Because it's more important for you to come to church with them than you to come to your favorite service. That's the proper response for those of us that are followers. Romans 10 verse 13. Paul says, how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? So we're going to partner in this thing together. Next week, I'm going to tell them. And I need everyone to be a part. We're going to do a survey at the end of church. And I'm asking everybody, all of you that are here today, to participate in this survey. It's going to be four letters, A, B, C, and D. And I'm going to ask everybody to check the letter that applies to them. Letter A is I'm already in a relationship with Jesus. Letter B is I want to begin a relationship with Jesus today. Last Easter, we had 119 people check letter B. Letter C is, you know what, I just need a little bit more time to consider it, to think it out. Letter D is, I don't ever intend to make this decision. Now, what's going to happen is they're going to look at you, and if you're not taking the survey because you don't feel like you need to because you've been in church a long time, they're not going to take the survey, and you're not going to put them in a position to actually evaluate themselves spiritually. So we need all of you to participate in this, which brings me to my third point. And, and, and before I actually give you the fill in the blank, because I know as soon as I give you the fill in the blank, you're going to be planning your exit. So I'm going to give you the scripture first to keep you here because I know you well. I mean, some of you are so OCD, you can't leave without the blank. And, and that's just the way it is. 
20 years ago, 20 years ago, I walked into a service very much like today, very much like what we're going to see next week. And I didn't understand it at all. And I was a little bit freaked out. It was a bit overwhelming. There were some things that I didn't quite get. I mean, some people that were very excited about Jesus. And all I remember is I didn't quite understand it. I was a little freaked out. It was a little, you know, weird for me. But all I felt was these people have something I don't have, and I want what they got. I don't quite understand it, but I want what they have. I want it. And it brought me back. And and, and I'm telling you, I was a little freaked out, but I came back because I wanted whatever they had. Because there was something powerful that they had. So look at this last scripture with me, Revelations chapter 5. In a loud voice, telling you, if you don't like loud music, you're going to hate heaven. You're not going to like it at all. In a loud voice, they sang. Now, that word they is significant. What does that word they tell us? It tells us that everybody was involved. Everybody was involved. It didn't say some of the people sang that were in the crowd. It said they, meaning everybody, was singing. And what were they singing? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. He was slaughtered. Worthy. So here's number three. Participate. We need every single one of you to participate next week. We need every one of you to be involved with what God is going to do on our campus next week. We need you to participate. How? Let me give you a couple ones. Raise your hands during worship. I'm telling you, when, when someone that has never tasted the lamb walks in here and they see a bunch of people that are not ashamed and a bunch of people that have no issue saying worthy is the lamb after what he did for me, after being slaughtered on my behalf. It, it, you know, the Bible says lift up. It says men lift up holy hands. I'm telling you, they're going to walk in and they're going to see something they've never seen before. They're going to see an energy and a passion and and they may not fully understand it. It may overwhelm them a little bit, but they're going to leave wanting more. They're going to want whatever you have when they see that passion. So let's participate. Let's be early. Let's be early. Why? Because first time people are early. If it's someone's first time at a church, nine times out of 10, they come early. It's no fun being early if no one's there to greet you. I want to authorize every single one of you to greet people next week, even if they've been coming to church longer than you. If you don't know them, greet them. Make them feel loved. Find a place to serve. Here's another big way you can help us out. If you live within walking distance, walk next week. We need extra parking. One of the things we're actually doing for you as a staff because we know how, how tough the 9.30 and 11 o'clock service are with parking, is the staff has decided, really just because we want to make it easier on you, that all the staff on Sunday, we park now down the street and we walk over. So myself and the rest of the staff, we park down the street and we walk here this morning so we can make it a little easier for you and create a little more space. If you're in the area and you can, you can not bring your car on Sunday, walk. It just makes it easier for people to come because we want to create as much space as possible for people to taste the lamb. We don't want any of it to go to waste. We want it all to be consumed next week. We want to make sure every person has a chance to experience that God is good. Would you close your eyes with me as we close today? Some of you today, you need to taste the lamb. And I know that sounds really, really strange. 
Hopefully you'll understand that a little bit more after, after today, the message. But what that really means is taste Jesus. Taste and see that he is good. Experience him. Know that he's awesome. He's amazing. He's got a plan for your life. He wants these four promises fulfilled. He wants to rescue you. Then he wants to set you free. And he wants to help, help bring you into your destiny and purpose. But the first step is not getting you cleaned up. See, that's been a myth. God wants to clean. I need to get myself, I need to get my act together. I need to get cleaned up before I come to God. No, God just wants to take you now. He'll do the cleaning later. He just wants to rescue you now. And how that happens is you simply today make a decision to put him first. You make a decision to surrender your life to him. It could be the first time you've ever made that decision, or maybe you just need to renew that commitment today. I don't know, but I want to pray with you. I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come down to the front. You don't even have to pray out loud. God will hear the condition of your heart if you are sincere and just say, God, it's, it's time that I do that. So what I want to do quickly is invite you to pray with me. So nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand if you need to pray with me? If you're in the cafe, uh, you can pray with me. But if you're here today, just raise your hand and say, I'd like to pray with you right now. So just raise your hand right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? appreciate those hands. The prayer is simple. Right now in your heart, you can use my words or make up your own as long as they have the same meaning and just say, Jesus, I invite you to take first place in my life. Jesus, forgive me for every time I've not put you first. Jesus, thank you for being slaughtered so that I could be saved in your name. Now, if you prayed with me, I want to encourage you to do one more step on your own. On the connection card you got in your worship guide, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. One says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. Whatever decision you made today, whatever you prayed, would you check the box so that we can know about it? Because we want to pray for you. It's the greatest decision you'll make. We'll send you an email that gives you the next steps of what it really means to walk out that decision and how you can kind of begin to move through the process of experiencing God's other three promises for your life. That was just the first promise. God has three more promises he wants to do in your life, and we want to help you get there. Would you stand with me as we close? Jesus, we loudly proclaim, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb. You are so worthy. When we look at what you did for us, we are so grateful that you went through the most unimaginable pain and suffering on our behalf. And it gives whole new meaning to the phrase, worthy is the lamb, when we understand that the lamb was slaughtered. So we thank you. We ask that you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, everybody.